is going to be at 7.30 on Saturday morning, and so I encourage you to, uh, when you see somebody, some new male face on Sunday morning, invite them to come to the men's prayer breakfast. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, prepared to study the word so that God the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture can use it to mature us, to strengthen us, and to uh, give us the insight we need to understand God's Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. There is nothing beyond your power, nothing beyond your ability. And Father, we pray for our nation that is going through such tumultuous times right now. We know that there are many believers in this nation who are truly walking with you and focused on the correct priorities. But our numbers are not what they once were. And there are many others that are just searching for truth. And, Father, we pray that as we go into this period of darkness that there would be the light of your word here and there and throughout the land that would bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to trust in him, and to want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that is our only hope. We can do many other things, but they will not solve the ultimate problem. And Father, we pray that we might see that kind of a transition because we know that you desire for all men to be saved. And so we pray to that end. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand some of the details in the passage we're studying tonight and that we can see its significance as it fits within what Peter is saying as he closes this epistle. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we're getting into a few fun verses. We have some review and wrap-up. We have a lot to cover. And you can tell by the way I titled the slide that you're gonna ha- we're going to have some fun. Willfully ignoring history and grammar. 
there are some uh, problems in the way dispensationalists have handled this passage in the past, and there is confusion as a result of grammatical oversight. So hopefully we will get to all of this tonight. We are in the third chapter of Peter, and we are in the second part. There are three parts. The first two verses where he is reminding his readers of the importance of remembering that which has been spoken before by the prophets. And then the second division is his refutation of the assumptions of the false teachers who are denying a literal second coming. And then the conclusion in the last four verses. So let's just back up a second to verse 2 where he says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And so in looking at this, what I did, just so you can remember, is we talked about that there were prophecies in the Old Testament, numerous prophecies. I've heard estimates of somewhere between 200 to 300 prophecies related to the Messiah. Some of those have been fulfilled, and I don't mean two or three. Uh, somewhere around a hundred different prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. That's almost impossible, virtually impossible. Uh, in terms of probabilities, it is impossible that that many would come together in one person. But what you will find out if you're talking to someone in the Jewish community that's not a believer is, well, he can't be the Messiah because he didn't do all these other things. And then they give you a long grocery list of things that didn't get accomplished, and they all have to do with the second coming and him establishing his kingdom. And the reason he didn't fulfill those prophecies was because he was rejected and he was crucified. But that didn't end God's problem because, I mean, God's plan because three days later Christ rose from the dead and he ascended to the, then he ascended later to the right hand of the Father. So we walked through some of these prophecies and I'm going to tie some things together because if you look down to verse. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Does that sound familiar? Day of the Lord, what's that? That's a really good question. And why does it come like a thief in the night? So this whole section, 10 through 13, is going to deal with some, a number of important prophecy passages. So I've been, gave you a little review of prophecy in the last couple of lessons and we'll continue tonight because it just helps set the stage for that and it's part of the text we're looking at already. So we come to verse 3 and in the English this is grammatically set up and it's translated as just a participle with an ing ending and the previous verse ends with a comma but it really should end with a period. And this participle, because this participle has an imperatival force, it's a command to know this first. Uh, 
And it's a present active participle, but participles are used imperatively numerous times, and that's the force of it. And note this first, or first of all, this is a priority item, and it, it's, chrono- it, it's, it's in a logical order. So he's going to say some things, and this is uh, the primary and important thing uh, to learn. The, the verb gnosko means to come to know something. So they have to come to understand this. And I translate this with a colon because the, in, in the English you have the word that, which translates uh, the Greek word here that is, uh, that is basically used simply to introduce a statement. So it's, in English it's better to translate it with just a colon and then give the statement. This is what they need to know. Scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. Now, I'm retranslating this as we go along in the slides above. Know this first. In the last days, scoffers will come with scoffing, walking according to their own lusts, which is almost identical to the parallel passage in, in Jude. I think it's verse, verse 11. So he is preparing them for something that will happen uh, in the last days. Uh, the, in the last days, these uh, scoffers will come with scoffing, and the will come focuses on the last, uh, the last days. And when we look at Scripture, the term last days is used to refer to the last days of the church, and it's also used to refer to the last days of Israel. So it's very important when you see the last days to look at the context, and are they talking about what's happening to Israel in the last days, are they talking about what's happening in the church in the last days? And Hebrews 1-2 says, in these last days. Now that was written somewhere around 65 AD. So in the, it's in the first century. It's still in the era of the apostolic period. And the writer of Hebrews is identifying the fact that they are living in the last days at that time. So the last days... for the church age, actually started with the birth of the church. The whole church age is referred to as last days. So I'm always confused when people say, are we living in the last days? We've been living in the last days for the last almost 2,000 years. Are we living in the end times? I don't know. I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet. There are certain trends that are going on that seem to intensify but you can have everything necessary for the events of the tribulation to take place and not have the tribulation take place for several years, decades, or centuries. It's theoretically possible. You can have none of the things ready and have the rapture occur, and then it will take some time before the tribulation begins because many things still have to be put in place. So we just don't know when the rapture is going to take place. 
So the issue is what they say. What are they scoffing about? What is their mockery? What are they um, making fun of? And that's in verse 4. They say, well, where's the promise of his coming? Jesus said that, you say, 2,000 years ago, and nothing's happened yet. You still think he's going to come back? It's been a long time, and look at all the things that have happened. Jesus isn't coming back because everything since the fathers fell asleep, that would refer back to those who wrote the Scripture, Old and New Testament, all things continue as they, as they, they were from the beginning of creation. Now, that's an important statement right there in the interpretation of this passage because they are making a claim that nothing has changed since the beginning of creation. All of the processes that we observe on the planet continue to be the same. Now, we'll talk a little bit later on about the fact that this relates to the evolutionary methodology our, under, uh, our presupposition, which is uniformitarianism, that all processes continue today just as they did uh, in the you know, 2,000, 4,000 years ago. And so the, in their language, the present is the key to the past. But before we get there, we want to talk about the, the language here of coming. And I talked about that last time and didn't finish, so I'm going to go through this fairly rapidly in terms of review that the word for coming here is the parousia. And that is not a technical word. Some people try to make it a technical word. It's not a technical word. It just means his coming, and it is used in passages for the second coming, and it is used in other passages for the rapture. So just the parousia does not necessarily mean uh, one or the other. For example, in Matthew 24, 3, uh, 2427, 2437, and 2439 in the Olivet Discourse, the coming of the Son of Man in all of those passages is the second coming at the end of the tribulation, and it, all, all those verses use the word parousia. But in other passages, it refers to the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we are who are alive and remain until the parousia of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, that is, believers who have already died. So it refers to the rapture in those passages. Now, we looked at the Olivet Discourse briefly last time, but I didn't get all the way through it, so I just want to hit a couple of reminding reminder points that the Olivet Discourse is talking about God's future plan for Israel. It's not talking at all about the church. You can look at any number of, of uh, better scholars and you will uh, re- that are dispensationalists, and they recognize that. However, there's confusion about that even among uh, dispensationalists. And a couple of years ago, I guess it was about four years ago, uh, Jeremy Thomas and I uh, split the Olivet Discourse, and he took half, and I took half, and uh, he taught the first part up to about verse 31, and then I took the rest of chapter 24 and all of 25. 
to show that this is an indivisible whole and Jews are not, I mean, a Gentile, excuse me, the church is not mentioned in anything. And this is a problem. And I'll point that out when we get there, uh, what, where, the confusion, uh, where the confusion lies. So they're answering the question, uh, or Jesus is answering the question that the disciples asked them, when will these things be? That's question one. And question two is, and what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? See, his coming ends the age, so they're two sides of the same coin. It's one question. And so when they ask this question, they're asking for the sign of his coming, which is the word parousia, and of the end of the age, which is the word soon telea. Now, you know the word telos, and uh, telios, which means end or purpose or maturity, something reaching its end goal. And so that's what it's talking about is bringing everything to a close, and that happens at the second coming. And this is this said the same way in Mark 13.3 and 13.4. So there's three major issues in, in the interpretation of Matthew 24. The first is what I alluded to a minute ago. Does any of it refer to the church? And I will say no as strong as I can. Now, what surprised me when, I, when we gave our, our papers at pre-trib a few years ago is there were a lot of people there who were from California. California, they've never heard that the church isn't in Matthew 24 or 25 because they've been dominated by some faulty campus crusade teaching that happened uh, over a number of years, and also a lot of people have been influenced by, uh, by, I, by some other prophecy teachers there who misunderstand the passage, and they have been influenced in the Calvary Chapel movement. Now, Calvary Chapel is uh, technically charismatic, but they're probably on the strong, conservative, biblically-based end of that spectrum and not the wild-eyed, crazy, uh, healing, deliverance ministry end of the spectrum, or at least they were as long as Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of the original Calvary Chapel Church, as long as he was alive. Uh, so that's, that's, um, that's important to recognize that, that difference, and I've had a number of people I know, like... Uh, uh, Andy Woods at Sugarland Bible Church and Tommy Ice and Randy Price and two or three others that I know uh, from pre-trib who speak at various prophecy conferences at various Calvary chapels, and they've told me that they're a lot more Bible-based than 90% of Bible churches today because Bible churches basically died at the end of the 80s. But that's another issue. So the issue here is, does any of it refer to the church age? And no, not at all. Um, second, who's taken, who's left behind in 2440 to 42? That's what I want to look at a little bit tonight. And third, the third significant issue is understanding the three parables at the end of Matthew and the judgment of the sheep and the goats. So we just ran through Daniel's 70th week a couple lessons back, the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week is called the beginning of sorrows. Literally, it's the beginning of labor pains. And that's in Matthew 24, 4 to 8. So that fits the first half of the tribulation period. The first three and a half years 
and the tribulation period. Just a reminder of Daniel's 70th weeks, there was a prediction that uh, there were 490 weeks, or, or excuse me, 70, 70 weeks, and you multiply 70 weeks by 7 in each week, that comes to 490, and we know it's years and not months or days because that doesn't fit anything. And so then uh, you have 7 years and 62 years, and that added together leaves, gives you 69. And after that, so see, that shows you this is an important point. It shows you that this, again, is another one of those passages that splits in two. So that the first half of the prophecy was fulfilled at the first coming, and the second part of the prophecy is fulfilled in the future. Jesus fulfilled a number of passage, prophecies like that, and I'll look at those in just a minute. But it, the text says that it's after the end of the 69th week. So that tells you that it has a pause, that God hit the pause button on the timeline for Israel, and it doesn't say, and we know it's going to last at least from 33, which is when Jesus was crucified, to 70, which is when the temple was destroyed. But it, that, nothing indicated that it would start up after the temple was destroyed or immediately after. So it's, we're still in this period of time. The temple was destroyed during this period. Messiah's cut off, temple's destroyed, and then an indefinite period of time. And in the future, there will be the coming prince of the Antichrist who signs a peace treaty with Israel, and that kicks off the, the stopwatch for the last seven years, not the rapture. All of that is on Israel's timeline. So we have two parts, three and a half years and three and a half years, and the Messiah returns at the end of those three and a half years. So the second three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, you see increased persecution of the Jews, uh, uh, attacks on Israel, and that comes after the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel. And we read in the passage... A number of things up to verse 8, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. Now, I'm going to give you a pop quiz when I get through explaining this, okay? So pay attention. This will happen, this will happen, this will happen. Then they will deliver you up. Now, let me ask you a question. When it says, then they will deliver you up, does that occur before the events in 4 through 8 or after the events in 4 through 8? After, right? Okay, now that's going to come into play when we get back into our passage in Second Peter because there's a same word used there that has been overlooked by a lot of people. So that tells us what's going on here. So the third thing that we see, the warning to flee to avoid the increased persecution of the second half of the trib, and that's in verses 15 to 22. And we know that because... Jesus made it very clear. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the blasphemy of the, of the Antichrist setting up an idol of himself to be worshipped in the Holy of Holies, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. He says, when you see it, flee. So that's 
the midpoint of the tribulation. And after that, there's hell on earth. That's the same time Satan and the fallen angels are cast out of heaven to the earth. And they will be made visible, I believe, at that time. So it's going to be really crazy. And Jesus said, for then, again, we have that word, then. And that means after the event that was mentioned just before. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. Jesus said it there. Jeremiah said it when he said this was a time of Jacob's wrath. There's never been a time like that. Several other places identify the tribulation as a time of war and a time of suffering like has never occurred at any time in human history. So Jesus' conclusion in verse 44 is, Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, he's been using that word parousia all the way through, and it's always meant when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation. And there's no indication it changes the meaning now. There's no indication that in verse 44, because it seems to speak of something imminent, because he says it's an hour you don't expect, there's nothing to indicate he's changed the meaning of the word and suddenly he's talking about uh, about the rapture. And that's important because the debated section is what begins in verse 36. So all of this precedes the or comes after verses 32 to 35, which is the parable of the fig tree, which when you see uh, when you see it put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. Well, what's the it? All the way through this, you'll know that the second coming, the arrival of Christ to the earth is near. It's at the doors. And then he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, some people say this generation was those he was talking to, but that doesn't fit the context or history. He was talking about the generation that saw all these things that have occurred in the first part of the tribulation. So he is saying that if you see the first half of the tribulation, you're in the generation that's going to, if you survive, be here when uh, the second coming occurs. And then he says, without taking a break, and in my Bible there is a heading that shouldn't be there. Remember, there's no heading, there's no... He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away, but of that day and hour, no one knows. So he is saying clearly, when he says of that day and hour, it has to be referring to the coming of the Lord. But because he says no one knows, there are people who say, well, if you have a calculator... If you have a calendar, you can figure it out. Daniel's 70th week says that there's going to be uh, seven years of 360 days each from the moment the Antichrist signs that treaty with Israel until the second coming. All you have to do is add up the days. 
Well, there's a hint somewhere in here that says something about if those days weren't shortened, which indicates that it may not go the full length, number one. Number two, the Antichrist, we know from uh, Daniel, is going to try to change the times and seasons like they did in the French Revolution, and that's going to confuse the calendar and confuse a lot of people. And I doubt that your Apple Watch will work or your any of your other time chronometers will help you and with all of the economic collapse and all of the other judgments that occur people are not going to keep track of what day it is and so he says of that day and hour no one knows you may know approximately but you don't know precisely not even the angels of heaven jesus said but only my father And then we get into verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also were the coming of the Son of Man be. Let's talk a little bit about what was going on at the time of Noah. What sets up the story about Noah in Genesis 6? You have the episode of the fallen angels identified as the sons of God a term that always refers to angels in the Old Testament. It refers to both the fallen angels as well as the uh, holy angels. And the reason they're called sons of God is because they are created by God. The Hebrew is Beneha Elohim, and last year when we did a lengthy study on the angelic revolt, we saw that the angels are called Beneha Elohim, Bene Elohim, Bene Elim, and sometimes they're just called Elohim. They're thought of it by humans as gods, but they are not Yahweh, the only God. So we looked at all of that. So the, these fallen angels looked on the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful, and they lusted after them. And so they came to earth, and they married, took them as, as wives, So what kind of marriages and weddings were going on during the time of Noah? Were they special sacred periods recognizing the sanctity of marriage as a divine institution? Or are are they orgies and carousing and perversions going on celebrating the intermarriage of angels with human beings? Now, which one do you think it is? It's the second These are not normal marriages. It's not normal time period. It is a time period when the evil in men's heart is is said to be so extreme and so continuous that God is going to destroy all but eight people on the planet. So he says, as the days of Noah were, evil with all caps and bold faith. Then he says, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, remember, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he was preparing and warning the people of the coming judgment of God and the flood and, and telling them that it was coming, it's coming. He might have given them some sort of general timetable, but he said, when you see me getting on the ark with all the animals, you know it's about to come, and you need to respond to the message of grace. But they acted like it wasn't ever going to come. They were blinded by their sin and their suppression of truth and unrighteousness. Now, for most of our lives, 
most of us have thought that most of our fellow citizens in the United States of America could think somewhat logically and rationally, right? Did you ever think you would see a day when so many people in this country, so many leaders in this country would be so divorced from reality and so irrational, absolutely blind to the truth? Remember in 2 Thessalonians 2, God is going to send great delusion on them. Okay, so they're going to be blinded to what is going on. They're not going to see it at all. And then in verse 38, we read, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Is that normal activity? See, when you listen to people who think that this is talking about the rapture because it's talking about people not knowing the day or the hour, uh, they say, see, this is normal activity. This isn't, you know, if you're going through the, the bold judgments at the end of the tribulation, you're not carrying on normal activity. My point is the, the, the activities here related to eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage at the time of Noah right before the flood were not normal weddings and marriages. They were perverse. The whole culture was profoundly corrupt and perverse. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. They were completely blinded by their own arrogance. They couldn't see, even though Noah had warned them, they couldn't see it until the flood actually came, and then they probably still didn't believe it until they took their last breath. So what we see is a warning in verses 23 to 28, not to be deceived about the coming of the Messiah, and that in verses 21 to 30, 29 to 31, the Son of Man is going to come in great glory and regather the regenerate of Israel. And then there's the warning of the parable of the fig tree to be ready. When you see these things, if you're alive, you'd be ready. And then there's three parables that come after it that emphasize the reality of future judgment for those who aren't ready. And th- that has to do with the faithful servant and the evil servant in verses 45 to 51, and that's talking about about Jews and a judgment for the Jews that survived the tribulation. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins, virgins also talks about Jews from the tribulation who survive the tribulation. And the parable of the talents, again, it's describing the believers during the end of the tribulation period and the judgment that will come upon those that survive the tribulation period. And then the last part, which isn't a parable at all, is the uh, sheep and goat judgment, which is a judgment on the Gentiles who survive the tribulation period. So none of this has anything to do has anything to do with the rapture but it's all about what God is doing to bring judgment through purifying fire. I'll explain that next week. Through purifying fire, as it's described in Isaiah 65 and 66, he will purify the earth to prepare it for the kingdom. So there will be a cleansing of the earth for, for preparation for the kingdom. 
And this sets, sets it up. Now, I mentioned this a minute ago because here uh, are some of the other passages we looked at in Daniel 9. There are prophecies that are split into two different times of fulfillment. These are, this is an important thing to, do, to know if you are talking to someone who's Jewish who will engage you in conversation about, about these things. In Isaiah 9, 1, and 2, we have a prophecy related to the first coming that is quoted as being fulfilled in Matthew 4, 15, which talks about the fact that a light will appear in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which is up north in Galilee. And by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. That's the first two verses. But the verses that follow, three through five, are all talking about the second advent. Notice this is in Isaiah 9. You have multiplied the nation, you increased its joy, they rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, that's Gideon, Judges 6. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. That's what happens at the second coming. But then in verse 6, we shift back to the first coming. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. That's first advent. Verse 7 is second advent. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we have first advent, second advent, first advent, second advent. Prophecy goes like that. There's no indication in the prophecy that there's going to be this huge break. Why is that? Why is there no indication of the church age? Because that would give a hint that maybe Israel doesn't accept the Messiah initially. So it leaves the option open for their volition to accept without hinting that there's a difference. Zechariah 9, 9. This was fulfilled in Matthew 21, 1 through 5, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. They are quoting this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But in the next verse, it's second coming. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. All attempts to have world peace or world peace is going to come to nothing because man is corrupt and a sinner and he can't do it. 
until Jesus returns, then he will establish peace. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is second coming. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. 23, 5a, the first part of the verse. But then it shifts to talking about his reign in the second part of the verse. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which we, he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Also passages, it goes on in verses 7 and 8 to talk about what the Lord will do. He's the one who will bring up the descendants of the house of Israel from the north and from all the countries where he drove them, and they shall dwell in their own land at the end of verse 8, that second coming. First coming, behold, I, in Malachi 3, 1, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's fulfilled with John the Baptist. He is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. But starting in verse 2, it's saying, Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. What's that tell you? He's going to come to purify the earth and cleanse the earth. And it is described as the refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He'll purify the priesthood and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So that helps set the stage. We'll be referring back to some of those verses as we go forward. It reviews us on the fact that we have future event, the rapture of the church where all believers are going to be taken to be with the Lord. That's when we receive our resurrection bodies. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to be with them in the clouds, and thus we shall forever be with the Lord. Then there's seven years of hell on earth like no one ever imagined. And then that ends when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and all of these fiery judgments mentioned in the tribulation are the ways in which the Lord is purifying the earth in preparation for his reign, his kingdom, and his presence on the earth. Now, back to Second Peter. Second Peter. We have looked now at Second Peter three, and we've looked at verses the first three verses that scoffers are going to come along in the last days, saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, that is those who uh, those who were who wrote the scriptures, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay. Now, when they say this, that all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, we have seen that fulfilled 
in a lot of ways over the last two or three hundred years in the development of historical geology. Uniformitarianism is also known as the doctrine of uniformity or the uniformitarian principle and is the assumption that the same natural laws and processes the, the, the decline when you look at things like carbon-14 dating, potassium-argon dating, all the other ways in which uh, scientists seek to determine how old the earth is and the various time periods and date the rocks in which they find the fossils. They date the fossils by the rocks and then the rocks by the fossils, so it's circular reasoning. And there have been many studies. For those who are interested, there are two very technical scientific books that were published by the Institute for Creation Research. I think volume one is still in print. Volume two is available online, and you can just download it, uh, as I have, onto your laptop. Uh, I forget the exact title, but they have to do with what they call the RATE project, R-A-T-E, which stands for the real age of the earth. And, and it's all science, and they are showing that by all of these various m- metrics that the earth uh, can't be as old as they say because there are, there are things that broke everything up. What they're, what they're saying is that all these rates of decline are rates, uh, are rates of de- depositing. For example, uh, you see the Mississippi River. You have all this sediment going, coming out all the time that's deposited at the mouth of the river, and so you have uh, a certain amount that's laid down every year. And they could measure that and determine that over a certain number of years, then the... Uh, it would all be silted in and the river wouldn't be flowing, but there's not that much silt there. It, it, it can't be that old. Or, or something cataclysmic happened to change things. But there's a denial here of any kind of cataclysm. Now, what's happened in recent years, some of it due to the fact that you've got people like Dr. Steve Austin and others who have published their findings in peer-reviewed journals you have uh, some changes, but nothing that is going to destroy the uh, theory of evolution. They say that mostly it's gradual, but every now and then there's some sort of minor cataclysm that may change things a little bit. And so they uh, have a somewhat uh, gradual uh, catastrophism in order to solve some of these problems. But the, still, the basic theory of uniformitarianism is, um, there's our definition, uh, the basic uh, theory of uniformitarianism still dominates geology and biology and everything else. And it only stands to reason because a, a pagan worldview has to have a myth or legend of origins. Where did we come from? If God didn't create us, we have to have some sort of credible uh, credible explanation of how everything came into existence. And so that's why they hold on to this so dearly, is because if this is proved to be false, 
then it demonstrates that the only option is there's a God who created us, and they're denying God. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So this is verse 4. Where's the promise of his coming? They're saying they're mocking, making fun. See, everything's just the same. All the processes, nothing's changed. God does not intervene. God isn't even around. At best, he's asleep and a couple of universes over and he's forgotten about everybody. So we go to verse 4. And now Peter is going to explain what has happened. He says, for this and but this is going to be the content of his explanation. He says this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water. Now, what I'm going to do is explain this to you, and then I will show you Uh, how we have some problems in our heritage and why this has been misunderstood. They are saying that the proposition that the word of God, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, that refers directly to the third day of creation. I'll show you why I say that in a minute. But they willfully forget it. The word willfully is from the Greek verb thelo, which is a word for, for um, will or choice or desire or wish. And it's a participle. And that participle is modifying the verb, which is the one on the, in the right panel, lantano, which means to forget. It refers to something that is hidden and it, ha- it has the idea of something that is escaping notice in the sense that they forgot it or they are willfully ignoring it. So that's the idea. They are intentionally ignoring it. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. So they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're intentionally uh, ignoring what has happened. And what they are forgetting is that the word of God, that it's by the word of God that the heavens exist, that everything that we see, all of the universe came into existence out of nothing by the ver- just the word of God. And this is stated numerous places in scripture. Uh, for example, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now, where did the psalmist get that idea? Well, he got it right out of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we have each day God spoke, and God spoke, and God spoke, and that's how each day begins. God speaks, and things come into existence, or he shapes things from what he's already uh, created. And this is taken all the way through, all the way through the scriptures. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them—that means everything in the universe, all of the stars, all of the inanimate things, and all of the animate things—by the breath of His mouth. 
Psalm 148, 4 and 5 is a praise psalm. Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. It's the word of God. Hebrews 11, it's not just an Old Testament thing. It is stated clearly in the New Testament. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. He creates everything. Ultimately, it was all created out of nothing. There was nothing, and then there was something. Now, he says that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and then we have this phrase, the earth standing out of water and in the water. A couple of things we have to observe here that it's important. When we look at the word for earth, we have to decide, is this referring to the planet earth or is this referring to land? That's an important exegetical decision. Because if it is talking about the planet, then it is saying that the planet was, and many translations, I'll get into this in just a minute, many translations will translate the verb for standing as formed. And so they come to the conclusion that, that there, there's this watery mass and God forms the planet out of that watery mass. That is not what it is saying. In fact, I believe that it should be translated the land, not the earth. It's not talking about the planet. It is talking about Haaretz, the earth. In the beginning, God created Haaretz, the earth. There it refers to the whole earth, but later it refers to the land mass itself. And so then we have to decide what this verb means. And I will tell you that I have spent time over the last month trying to work through these issues on what this word means because how you take it is important. If you take it the way a lot of translations take it as formed out of water and through water, that has the idea that there is this is the creation of the earth. If it is talking about something else, the, the uh, bringing forth of the land from the water and through the water, then that seems to be a very accurate uh, description of the third day of creation. So we have this word, soon histemi. It's a perfect active participle, which indicates that it's talking about completed action. Okay, so it's talking about the land after it has been brought out of this watery mass. And the lexicons uh, describe the meaning as being to place, some, place together, to bring together by gathering. That's the idea that I think is the best. Bring things together by gathering things together to put together by composition or combination, or to bring something about. Now, the way it's translated, it's translated as standing, 
in the King James Version, the New King James Version, and the New Living Translation. It has nothing to do with textual differences. Uh, the New Living Translation was done just in the last, uh, I think, two or three decades ago. It has nothing to do with the, ant uh, the antiquated language of the King James. It has to do with the fact that the translators understood that it's not talking about a creative activity. If you look on the left, standing is not listed as a meaning in any of the major lex Hebrew lexica. It is translated as formed in the ESV. A lot of people have asked me about that. I've the, the NASB 95 is a, is a refinement of the NASB, I think, it, early, early 70s. And that was a refinement of the American Standard Version, the ASV, of, I think it was 1908. So you have these families of translations, like you have the, the King James. And the King James uh, is, is the basis for the new King James. And then you have some other branches that come off of that. One was the RSV. There was one that came before that. Um, that the RSV fixes and c causes a lot of problems because liberals tr translated words like, like Alma for virgin and they translated as a young maiden and all the conservatives said that's a, that it, it's denying the virgin birth. We're not going to buy that Bible and no self-respecting uh, conservative fundamentalist would ever be caught dead owning an RSV. And then that was modified by an updated in the in the new revised standard version and then the ESV I just recently learned is the next version from the, starting with the RSV so there's a family there the RSV the NRSV and then the NA, and then the ESV also Olson Gordon Olson in his New Testament translation translates it as formed Webster that's Daniel Webster, 1823, translated the New Testament, one of the uh, signers of the, I can't remember now whether it's a constitution or declaration. And the NIV, all translate it that way. The uh, Young's literal translation translates it standing together. He's trying to get at this. Now, there's a Weymouth translation that just uses more words to try to get the idea across, and he translates it as the latter, that is the earth, arising out of water and extending continuously through water. See, there he's clearly picking up on the imagery of the third day of creation. Uh, Darby, John Nelson Darby, systematizer of dispensationalism, said, having its subsistence out of water. That seems to fit Genesis, the third day of the creation week. And then the Bible in basic English translates it as, a, and an earth lifted out of the water and circled by water. So th these are trying, they're, they're getting much closer to the way in which this should be translated. I would translate it um, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the land gathered out of water and through water. That's how I, I gathered, I, and I'll show you why I think that. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, we have, we'll go through this in just a minute, but we have the initial creation, Genesis 1-1, then we have the judgment on the planet, 
Genesis 1-2, and then Genesis 1-3, I believe, is the beginning of the, uh, of the uh, first day of, of uh, what some call restoration. Then you come to the third day in verse 9. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Now, and then verse 10 says, and God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So you have this, this concept of gathering. The first get, be gathered is a verb, and that is in the lower left panel, kava, and that simply means to gather. What's interesting is they did, even soon histemi, our Greek word that we're looking at, is used to translate the word on the right, mikvah, one time in the Septuagint. It's only used four times in the Septuagint. And it's used to translate mikvah one time, but not here. They use the word sunago, from which we get the noun synagogue or synagogue. Okay, it's a place to gather together. Okay, and then in Genesis 1.10, the gathering together of the waters is the word mikvah. If you've been to Israel, you've seen a mikvah. You have uh, dozens and dozens, maybe 80 or 90 mikvah on the southern steps. They're the, they're the pools for cleansing where before you went into the temple, you would walk down one side of the stairs and you would uh, wash and then you come out the other side of the stairs. That's a mikvah. That's the noun. That's the gathering place of water. So it should be, I think it should be translated uh, gathered. Uh, and then the prepositions are important. It is ek that's there without from the water. And that's what ek means, is something that comes from uh, something else or is derived from something else. It can indicate origin or it can indicate um, a, a couple of other, uh, a couple of other uh, nuances. And so it is gathered out. But then the next one is translated in the, um, oh, in the original there in Peter with... Um, it, it's gathered, let me get back to that verse, uh, in the water. It's not in the water. It's not the preposition in or the preposition ace in Greek. It's the preposition dia followed by a genitive noun, which the exact same construction we have when it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So dia with a genitive noun indicates means or through. So it is through water. It's out from water and through water, which makes a lot more sense when we look, compare it to what happens on the third day. And then verse 6 says, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now, don't turn your eyes backwards in your head and swoon over this. This drove me nuts. What you have the by which it is in some Greek, for example, we, we've got 
about two or three, you've got the United Bible Society produces a Greek edition that's a critical text. You've got the Nessel Alon text, okay? And you've got the 26th edition, the 27th edition, 28th edition, because I've had Logos for a long time. So I've, even between the 26th, the 27th, and the 28th, they changed the word. Between, so it doesn't have anything to do with the majority text versus critical text. It's that they can't make up their mind what the reading is here. So even in the same, produced by the same editors and the same group, it'll go from having a singular relative pronoun to having a plural. But it's more than that. It goes from a singular accusative to a plural genitive. And then the next year they'll, oh, maybe we were wrong. We'll put the singular back in there. And so when I discovered that, I thought, oh, gosh. How, I mean, you don't even, and you've got all kinds of manuscript evidence. Nobody make up their mind. So if it's dia with the accusative, which is d hon, that o n ending, that's an accusative ending. It means because of, but they didn't translate it because of. They translated it as if it's dia plus the genitive, which is through water, or with water. So. Um, it's just really confusing. So the problem is that down at the bottom, even the various editions of the Greek New Testament change from one to the other. And some, even the ones with the singular accusative, which should be translated because of which the world that then was existed or perished. And they don't translate that way. They still translate it with a instrumental or, or, or means. So it's just absolutely confusing. But I think that the neuter plural makes the most sense. It is through which, and it's a plural which. So what are the two things that flooded the earth? See, it's by which the world that then was, was flooded with water. So what are the two things that did it? Well, if you look at the previous verse, we're reminded that it was by the word of God, that the uh, heavens were of old and the earth gathered out from the water by which the world that then existed perished. So the two things are the word of God and the water. That's what, dis- that's what later destroys the earth. Okay, quick review. I know you're going, it's late, but we've got to take this all in one chunk, but I'll review it. Genesis 1-1, God created. Genesis 1-2, God judged darkness... He, you have the words darkness, deep, and without form and void. The three together are all negative words. It's like when you are watching a Western and all of a sudden you hear the low music or you're watching an opera and you hear the bass, you know the bad guy's in the wings and he's ready to appear. So something negative has happened. So I believe that's when a judgment was placed on the planet. That's as a result of the angelic revolt. Second part of one, two, the Holy Spirit moves on the water. So it's water. It doesn't say ice. And then in Genesis 1, 3, at the beginning of day one, the earth is covered in water. There's no dry land. It's just a planet that is covered in water. It's not a watery mass. It's just a planet that's covered in water because... And, and, and you have day one, the earth, which is covered with water. God 
makes light and separates it from darkness. What? There was darkness on the face of the earth from the previous judgment. So he's going to create light and separate it from the darkness. Day two, God separates the waters above from the waters below. In between is what he called, what is called the firmament, the atmosphere. And on day three, God gathers the waters so that dry land appears. See, that's, that's exactly what Peter's talking about here when, when he talks about the heavens were of old and, and the earth uh, gathered out of water and through the water. So dry land appears. It was already, the land was already there under the water, and when God gathered the waters, then you had dry land appear. That's the explanation. So now in verse 6 we read, By which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Now it's a pop quiz. I told you it was coming. When we saw that word then, back in Matthew 24, does the then follow the events of the previous verses or does it take us back to something before the previous verses? It's after. It follows. Okay, the reason I say that is because in the gap view, the old earth gap view of Pember and of Clarence Larkin and a number of others, they said this isn't the Noahic flood here at all. This is all talk. The world that then perished is the world between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. But you just have to read the context. It's that little word then that is so important. It says, by which the world that then existed. Existed when? Existed after the waters were gathered and the dry land appeared. So that's day three. So when it says the world that then existed, that existed after the separation of dry land and water, that earth, which was the earth of Eden, the earth of the period from Eden to the flood, that perished in the flood of Noah. And when you look at that old earth gap view, you have to remember a couple of things. That there were some who still held to a worldwide flood in Genesis 6 through 9. But the majority of old earth gap people like Pember and Arthur Custance and some others took a local flood view because the worldwide flood was what they put between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 by misinterpreting this particular passage. That's why I've been banging my head through against the wall and going through all of these things for the last three or four weeks is to resolve this and demonstrate that they were just wrong because they misunderstood the grammar and they ignored the word then. I've read through all this stuff and nobody mentions then. The next thing is, in, in, in 2 Peter 3, 6, is the world that then existed perished. I'll talk about that word in a second. Being flooded with water. That's the verb on the left, cataclusio. The noun form is cataclysmos, where we get our word cataclysm. Cataclysmos, the noun, is used in the previous chapter in 2 Peter 2.5 when it says that, uh, talking about Noah, it says he was a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. The word for flood is cataclysmos. So the verb 
uh, being flooded, being cataclyso, it indicates contextually that it's got to, they, they've got to be talking about the same basic event. Now, the other word that's used here is the word perished. And this is the Greek word apolumi. Everybody here knows how it's translated. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not, what? Perish. Now, does that mean they're annihilated? No. They die, but they have life that goes on eternally, but it will be in the lake of fire. Matthew 10.28 uses the word, and, say, and Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill, the, who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are they annihilated in hell? No, they're not. The word perish doesn't mean being annihilated. But Clarence Larkin understood it to mean that way. But he contradicts himself. But he says, It is clear that Peter does not refer here to Noah's flood. For the world of Noah's day did not perish. See what he's saying? He's taking perish to mean being annihilated. And he says it wasn't annihilated. So he completely misses, misses the Greek. And he says, and Peter goes on to add in, uh, that the heavens and the earth which are now, that is, have been in existence since the restoration of the earth in Genesis 1, 3 to 31, by the same word are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and, and the future. We'll get into that, that next time. But that's, that's his quote. I just wanted to get all that in there because the old gap view that argued that this was talking about uh, the, the flood that God puts on the earth in judgment for the fall of Satan was the flood of Second Peter 3 just doesn't fit the grammar, doesn't fit the language, doesn't fit anything. It's just wrong. Now, I believe that, that the, only, the best answer so far for when did Satan fall has to be between Genesis 1-1 and 1-3, but it doesn't necessitate any long period of time. The only reason people put long periods of time in there was because historical geology on the basis of uniformitarianism said the earth was really old. But the view that there's some sort of gap between 1-1 and 1-3 goes back to at least the second century A.D. That's pretty far. It was the view of John Milton, and John Milton knew the Old Testament. He was the one who wrote, wrote Paradise Lost. He was a Puritan uh, preacher. So we ha and we had numerous others who believed that. So it's not a view that came along uh, to somehow adapt itself to, to Darwin. That is the view of some kind of a gap. The view of a gap that was millions or billions of years, yes. When they put that length of time in there, that was the result of assimilating to Darwinism. So that's enough for tonight. That gets us through it. We'll review it a little bit more next week. But that's the idea, is he's saying they're just tonight. It's talking about modern-day evolutionists, that everything considers, continues as it once was. And so Peter is prophesying the apostasy of the modern age. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and help us to understand them as people go back over their notes and think their way through this because this is critical to properly understanding what, gets set, what will get set up in the coming verses. So, Father, we pray that uh, you'll help us to really come to understand this and its significance for understanding everything Peter's saying in this chapter. 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.